Sometimes the past can make the ground beneath you feel like quicksand. You don't have to worry. You reach for my hand. You're stronger than you know. If you're lost out where the lights are blinding, caught in all the stars are hiding, that's when something wild calls you home. It's all about God's strength. It's not about our strength. When we're stronger than we know, it's because he is strong. It's because he fills in for our weaknesses with his strength. And he is doing something beyond our wildest hopes and dreams. He is calling us home in the the wild wonder of the mystery of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's calling us into amazing things. But we must pursue him. And that pursuit must be done with passion and with grace. And we must pursue relationships in a way that honors him, in a way that is is congruent with what he's trying to teach us. This morning, we're going to look at three passages of scripture to try to get a, a bead on this relational journey, this pursuing relationships as we pursue God together. Forgiveness is hard work. Pursuing quality relationships is the hardest work. And you are desperately longing for two things. Everyone is desperately longing for two things. So what's the state of your relational world today? The experiences we have relationally define us and refine us for God's purposes. So allow me to talk to you about pursuing relationships. Matthew 18, verse 21. At that point, Peter got up the nerve to ask, Master, how many times do I forgive a brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? And when he said seven, he thought, I am going way beyond what I need, where I need to go. I am, I'm giving another opportunity after another opportunity to forgive. So seven, is, that's probably the maximum because the real number was, was in their culture a lot less than that. It was, it was I believe it was three times that, that they felt required to, to go down this road of forgiveness. Do I forgive a brother or sister who hurts me seven Times? Is it seven times? I think I got the right answer. Jesus replied, seven? Seven? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. And when he said that, it was, it was a, a number that was limitless. It's just you forgive and you forgive and you forgive. You go down all these, these relational roads of forgiveness as you pursue God and as you pursue relationships for the rest of your life. And Peter was was stunned in that moment. Never thought about it in that way. I had to forgive the other day. I had to forgive my wife. She sends me up into the attic. She says, up in the attic, there's a hole. And it's right where the the sheetrock is is meeting the, the flooring. And if you can fill in that hole with this foam that I bought, it's, it's very special filling in the whole foam that you get like at the Do It Center up here on Laskin Road. 
and she got this can. And what you have to know is, is I always have like a flashback. I, I am the world's worst handyman. I, I, I'm not even close. On a scale of 100 points of being the best handyman in the world, uh, Don Carter scores at 100. I score at minus 2. I'm off the scale on the bottom end of it. And I, I failed the Air Force mechanical aptitude test. Failed it. It's hard to fail the test. You, I got a zero. You, I should have, by guessing, I should have got one right. Failed the Air Force, didn't want me. I said, go away. You're too dangerous for the Air Force. Uh, so here I am, and as I, I, as I begin to ascend those rickety stairs that go up to the attic, you know, I'm just not feeling confident. But I, I'm armed with my with my trusty can of, of foam, and it's got that little nozzle extender on it. And so I get up there, I, I isolate the hole, I look at it several different ways, I begin to, to spray, and the foam starts to do its, its foaming stuff. It starts to like expand, and I'm, I'm spraying, it's, it's getting bigger. I think I'm gonna get like lost in the foam. So I, I get it all filled in. Uh, I don't know how, how well I did, but then I thought, you know, there's too much foam. I'm going to like smooth some of it out with my hand. So I start smoothing it out. Now it's all over my hand. And I go, I better go downstairs and wipe this off my hand. But by the time I get down the steps, the foam has encased my hand in rubber. I mean, it is like locked on. So it's, it's like a, my hand is now a rubber glove. And it's, it's attached to the skin. And, and so, you know, I'm looking at her. She's looking at me. You know, she goes, I better read the can. There must be some information about this. So, yes, they anticipated this. The people make the foam anticipated. And, and they, they said, if it gets on your hand, you have to immerse your hand in Vaseline. And then hope and pray. It says this on the can. Hope and pray <laughs> that the stuff will come off. So I don't have big tubs of Vaseline just hanging around my house. You know, so I, I, I drive down to the 24-hour pharmacy. I go in there. You know, a, a woman in one of the aisles who was restocking things, she looked at me. She laughed. <laughs> I'm embarrassing out in public. Uh, so I, I get the biggest thing of Vaseline. I, get, I drive home. I shove my hand in it. Now, what you have to know at the Simone household, we always start doing projects around 10 p.m. I don't know why, but that's when we do stuff, 10 p.m. And... And now it's like 11, and i got to have my hand in here for like an hour. So I'm just watching TV, my hands in the Vaseline. You know, and then the Vaseline, while I'm watching TV, the Vaseline starts to migrate down my clothing. It gets all over my pants. You know, now i got a cleaning bill that I'm going to have to pay. I'll submit the receipt to my wife, see if I can get her to pay it. So here, here, here it is, and I pull my hand an hour later. I pull my hand out. Nothing, nothing, nothing moved. You know, I just got a lot of Vaseline all over my hand. Then, you know, we read the can further. It says, take your, your, your mucked up Vaseline hand, where'd this come? And, and put it in a rubber glove. So I do that, and now I've got this, this rubber glove, okay, and it's, this is the actual, this is the left hand version because I already used the, the right hand version. Right, and so now, I have to sleep with this, so I'm in bed with my hand up in the air like this, you know, and so not a good night's sleep. Seven o'clock in the morning, I'm up, 
And I'm, now I'm afraid, because I feel like heat and radiation coming off of the glove. And I'm afraid to take it off, but I, I go ahead and I, I take it off, and it's like, there it is, this stuff really hasn't moved. I, I sort of wipe it off, and, but I notice that it's a little more pliable. So then I have to gently start like trying to find a spot, peel off a quarter of an inch, find another spot, peel off another inch. There's a young man right there with a t-shirt. Uh, it says, what does it say on your t-shirt? Barcelona. Now you're not married, are you? Take notes. Take notes. This will happen to you at some point in your life. Okay, and they don't tell you about this in premarital counseling. You don't, you don't get any of this. All right, so, you know, so it took me like an hour from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. Finally, I got most of it peeled off. And, and, and all I want to say is, I forgive you. You know, I, I have to forgive her seven times 70 for, for all these things. And, and, and that's sort of the story of our lives. We all get into these crazy situations. And, and Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive Somebody who hurts me, seven? Isn't that enough? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. Try never stopping the journey of forgiveness. Because Jesus knows that's what it's going to take. In my book, Altitude, I wrote a chapter about forgiveness, and I talked about five kinds of forgiveness. Let me give those to you briefly. Reset button forgiveness. Reset button forgiveness is when is when somebody does something to you, it's not that big of a deal. It kind of annoys you in the moment. You know, they took something out of your office and they didn't put it back or they, they spilled something on you. And, you know, it's a lot of, lot of petty. They said something and you're like, hmm, like, why did you say it? But it's like, it's just little stuff. And so you go, I'm not going to let that bother me. I'm just going to forgive that right now. Boom. Reset button forgiveness. And you just move on. Process forgiveness is a little more complicated because now you have to sit down with somebody and talk about something that involves forgiveness and so you're going to sit down maybe have a cup of coffee you're going to take a walk together you're going to talk and you're going to say things like help me to understand or when you did that did you have some kind of a, a motive behind that, that that you were trying to get back at me and so you, you talk and you enter a process and that process might take one time might take two cups of coffee, three walks around the block, but it's a process. And then you go, oh, I, I get, I understand, and, and, and I forgive you, and you forgive me, and, and we're good. And then you have faith forgiveness. Faith forgiveness is, you know, God has forgiven everybody, and you don't understand why that happened or why that person did what they did. But you forgive rather than carry that around. You forgive because you know God has forgiven, and he's a forgiving God. So you let faith guide your pursuit of forgiveness. And then you have boundary forgiveness. Boundary forgiveness can be tough, because it says, I forgive you, but we can't have a relationship anymore, because the relationship doesn't work, and it never has worked, and it's just hurt after hurt after hurt, and, and it's just, we can't have this but I forgive you, and you set a boundary. And finally, there's solo forgiveness. Solo forgiveness is when you forgive yourself. You forgive yourself for, for not doing what you should have done, or for going where you shouldn't have gone, or for doing what you didn't want to do, and, then, and you did that, or sometimes for not doing what you should have done. And you forgive yourself. 
How many times do I forgive? Seven times? Try 70 times seven. It's a lifetime pursuit. Forgiveness is a lifetime pursuit. And if we want to pursue a God who forgave us, then we have to pursue forgiving others in that same way. Ephesians chapter 4. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul's writing to one of the early churches. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. He's saying, if you're going to pursue relationships, you have to pursue relationships through kindness and compassion. And, of course, the theme of forgiveness is there again. And it, it, it is so much a part of our lives. And a lot of this stuff happens in families, just like the early church is a family, and it's a family of families. A lot of it happens in families. A lot of forgiveness, a lot of what needs to be done needs to be done with brothers and sisters, with mothers and fathers and, and children, with really close friends sometimes, because we're human beings, and we don't always hit the mark. And forgiveness is the pursuit of God in a way that brings relational integrity back into our lives. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. My dear, dear friends, Paul writes, I love you so much. I do want the very best for you. You make me feel such joy. Fill me with such pride. Don't waver. Stay on track. Steady in God. Stay on track. Steady in God. In your pursuit of God and in your pursuit of relationships. Stay on track. Steady in God. And now you're going to have three names that are unusual for the 21st century. I urge Eudia, Yodia, and Syntyche. I'm just going to call them Yudi and Cindy. I urge Yudi and Cindy to iron out their differences and make up. Yudi and Cindy have got a problem. They're, they're sideways with each other. This is the early church. But these are people just like you and me. Iron out their differences and make up. Get through that. God doesn't want his children holding grudges. If you're pursuing God, you have to pursue relational integrity. And oh yes, Zizgus, I'm just going to go with the last three letters, Gus. And oh yes, Gus, since you're right there to help them work things out, do your best with them. In other words, you want somebody maybe to help you in the process of, of working things out. And that's one of the, the beauties of, of the church. It's one of the beauties of friendship in the body of Christ that somebody else can come along and say, let me help you guys 
you know, hear each other. Let me help you to kind of figure this out, because I think there's something that you're, you're missing here. And, and you can get perspective that you're blind to from another person who cares about you, who loves you. It was that way then. It's that way now. These women worked for the message hand in hand with Clement and me and with the other veterans, worked as hard as any of us. Remember, their names are also in the book of life. They have pursued God. And we're all going to be together someday in heaven. Celebrate God all day, every day. I mean, revel in him. Make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. Help them see that the master is about to arrive. He could show up any minute. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. And I love this next phrase. Let petitions and and praises shape your worries into prayers. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. There's an echo in there of Jesus saying to the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that. And God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. It's like God is is directing an orchestra. We're the orchestra. He's going to direct us to perform something so beautiful upon the ears of the world, upon the ears of other people. But we have to pursue him to get there. And we have to pursue integrity and relationships to get there. So let me tell you about the lies and questions of pursuing relationships. Chip Ingram wrote a book about the five lies of relationships. His lie number two is, if other people would shape up, my life would work out. If they would just get it together, my life would be a whole lot easier. Shape up. Get it together. You're, you're frustrating me. You're plucking my nerves. You know, this, you know, if you would get it together, my life would work out. Put this on your top ten book list of books you got to read in the next year or two years. Safe People. It's one of my most favorite books ever because it's so practical. It's so down earth. It's so biblical. How to find relationships that are good for you and avoid those that aren't by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And they talk about unsafe people and unsafe relationships and, and there are a lot of chapters that 
that pull that apart and peel off the layers and, and get to the, to the real truth of everything. And then they talk about, about safe people and safe relationships. They say unsafe people think they have it all together instead of admitting their weaknesses. I've got lots of weaknesses. And when I look at them, I go, oh, God, just help me in these weaknesses with your strength. Unsafe people only apologize instead of changing their behavior. And there's a litany of I'm sorry's, and there's nothing that ever changes. Unsafe people blame others instead of taking responsibility. If other people would shape up, my life would work out. It's your fault. That's why my life doesn't work. Unsafe people lie instead of telling the truth. And that lie might just be a fraction off from the truth or it might just be you know, a little bit off to the left or right, but it's not straight down the pike. It's not right down the road. And so it's really not the truth. So you never know kind of where you stand. Safe relationships do three things. They draw us closer to God. They draw us closer to each other. And they help us become the real person God intended us to be. There's an, there's an unfolding of that real person. And there's certainly sometimes some drama in that, just like there was some drama for the disciples and some drama in the early church that I, I read to you this morning. But the goal is, I want to be the person God created me to be. And in their book, they talk about safe people as defined by John 1.14. So I call this the, the Jesus model for safe people. Number one, dwelling. Dwelling means connection, connection at the heart level. That being with these people is like coming home. That's what a safe person is. It's like it just feels good. It feels right. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there uh, is in, in the ancient vocabulary, tabernacled. In our modern vocabulary, it would mean sort of, you know, built a tent and camped out. And you know when you, when you camp out, you know, it's very, very real. It's, it's different than being at home where you, you get a shower and everything looks good. You probably have to wake up and put on a baseball hat and and, and you're, you're cooking over fire, you smell like, like the fire after a while, and things are kind of are rough, but it's that you're, you're, you like that, and, and people love that for some reason I, that I don't understand, but people love that because it gets them to that place where they feel at home with each other, and there's that, that dwelling, I'm connecting. My heart, your heart, feels like home. Grace, grace means I'm on your side. You might have said something wrong. You might have done something really wrong, but I'm not running away. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here with you. I'll listen to you. I'll pray with you. I'll be there. Call me. Grace means I'm, I'm on your side. And truth, dwelling, grace, truth. Truth means honesty. Um, faithful are the wounds of a friend, it says in Proverbs. Reality. Reality is your friend, says 
Henry Cloud. And it's all part of a change process. And a change process always depends upon the truth, always depends, depends upon you've got to engage something that maybe you don't want to hear, or maybe you don't want to grapple with, but in safe relationships with safe people, the truth builds a bridge toward change that makes you the person God wanted you to be. Dwelling grace, truth, draws us closer to God, closer to each other, helps us to become the real person God wants us to be. Sean Anequist offered a couple of pursuing relationship questions in her book, Present Over Perfect. I like these two. What do you need to burn down in your life to make space for a new way of living? Think about that. What do you need to burn down? Just clear the land. Make space for a new way of living. We once lived where a house behind us was, was getting older and older and starting to fall apart. And the fire department came out one day and burned the house down you know, so they could learn how to combat a fire in a real-life situation. That maybe burned to the ground. And then they came and they hauled it all away, all the, the burnt timbers and the burnt everything, and then there was, there was nothing. Then they built a magnificent house there, magnificent. And uh, there's time and place in our lives when we have to do that. We have to, like, just let's burn that down and let's figure out what we're supposed to do here, really. And each person has to understand that for himself or herself. But if you really think about it, right now you go, that part of my life should probably be torn down and redone. And, and maybe it's not just a remodel, or maybe it's not just you know, new furnishings. Because a lot of people live in the same ruts for years and decades, and they, they paint uh, and they put down new carpet, but it's still, if you stand back, it's still a rut. So what, what is that? It's a great question. What commitments, expectations, roles, structures seem immovable until you start to move them and find that when you do, everything changes? In the movie Risen, there's a Roman centurion, and, and he's intrigued with this idea that, that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and he thinks he sees Jesus and believes he sees him, in a post-resurrection experience. And so he leaves behind being a Roman centurion. Of course, it's a fictional story based upon first century stories from the Gospels. But he leaves his life as a Roman centurion and he starts to follow the disciples at a distance because he's trying to leave behind roles, structures that seem immovable. And he's not really sure what he's up against with this Jesus until it starts to happen. I want to show you this. I brought water. Ah! 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 
water! So at first, Peter doesn't forgive, and, and he's got this, this cut on his leg, and it's going to be a scar. And then as they take the bread together, he realizes he's got to go beyond himself. He's got to remember a God who forgave us all. And he begins to invite the Roman centurion into their, into their company. At the end of the movie, there's a scene where where the centurion and Peter are together and they look at each other and, and Peter looks down at the scar and they smile because they know things have changed. And the centurion has, has taken commitments, expectations, roles, structures that seemed immovable and he moved them. And he started to pursue God. He started to pursue relational integrity with others. Shauna also writes in a a chapter called Baptism, about two words, terms and expectations. Terms and expectations. And that's what we need to know to understand our lives. What an extraordinary term. What an extraordinary idea. There are terms and there are invitations. And what she's talking about is, is your life comes with all this stuff, and you have, you have brokenness, and you have celebration, and you have heartache, and you have rejoicing, and it's all this stuff. And, and somebody has just talked about all the disappointments. His marriage wasn't what he wanted. His childhood left him aching for love. His career wasn't soaring the way he'd imagined it could. All these disappointments. And she says, there are terms. Those are the terms. And there are invitations. And, and the invitations are, what will you do now? What are you invited to out of these terms of your life? Most of us don't live this way. Or at least control freaks like me don't live this way very often. We like to think we set the terms and we issue the invitations. But maturity, perhaps, is the realization that we are not handing out terms or invitations. To be very honest, my first several brushes with the terms of my own limitations didn't bring me to maturity. They brought me to blame, to anger, fist shaking, sputtering with fear and outrage. But after enough limitations and failures and small deaths, even I began to come around to the invitations, to the idea that our lives are not blank slates, but they're beautiful nonetheless. No, they're beautiful because of that. 
because they've been created over time in love and sickness, in moments of courage, in moments of terror. And so she says, you've got to understand that they aren't your terms. And you own them, but they're not yours. And they're not your invitations either. You don't invite the terms, invite you to be more of who God wanted you to be as you pursue him. And so you, you have to have courage and there's also terror. And it's all part of the journey of pursuits. Another pursuit of relationship lie might be, I have to be busy all the time to know my life is working. That's what I call hit and run Christianity. And I've done that. And you've done that. And it doesn't work real well. There's a verse that we read earlier in Philippians 4.6. Petitions and praises shape your prayers. In order for petitions and praises that you put before God to shape your prayers, you have to be quiet before him. You have to get to a place that Jesus called, go into your closet. And where you are hidden in secret, in secret, God was, God's going to hear you. There's going to be something that is about the pursuit that's deep and abiding because you've created a quiet space. You don't get that when you hit and run all the time. Another pursuit of relationship lie might be church is an experience I have for me. Makes me feel better. Somehow somebody encouraged me. In reality, church is a relationship. A relationship we have to connect to God as we pursue him and each other for the purpose of living out the two things we desperately long for. Passion and grace. We long for passion. We long for for God's passionate love toward us. There's a, a Hebrew word from ancient times called hesed. It means God has this unrelenting, pursuing love for you. Never gives up. He's always chasing you down. And grace is to be free because of what Jesus did. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith. It is the gift of God. God wants to give you the two things you desperately long for, passion and grace. It's a picture of what happened at the well in John chapter 4 where where Jesus meets this woman and she's just out there to get some water and she just wants to get home and her life has been difficult. And she had five husbands. Now she's living with a, a man that's not her husband and Jesus is about to reveal that to her. But first he's telling her about what she needs more than anything else living water. What she needs more than, than, than water. She needs a well of water inside of her that will spring up to eternal life. And she's sort of confused until he goes, well, you've been married five times. You had five husbands. And now you're living with a guy who's not your husband. And all of a sudden she, she wants to know a little bit more about who this person is because she needs passion and grace. And maybe her life is a little numb. And maybe she's gotten a little lost in the pursuit of things. And it's, it's sort of like, go get water, go home, go through the routine. And then she is stunned when she says, 
I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything. And Jesus looks at her and says, I who am speaking to you am he. And in that moment, there's something that just grabs her. Because we all want that. We want to know God. We want to meet God. And, and by pursuing him, we will know him in a deeper way. By pursuing relationships of integrity, we'll know each other in a deeper way. Aslan is the great lion from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. And he was the, the image, the symbol of Jesus Christ in that story. And there's a great quote, and sometimes Lewis just, just hits it right to our souls when he writes these little word stories, these little word pictures, and he, he did it right here with this reaction to Aslan. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It might not always be safe or feel safe. You might need to to face triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same in the words of Kipling. But when you pursue God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and that drives you into each and every day. When you pursue relationships of integrity and you're willing to do the work of forgiveness seven times 70, it never ends. When you're willing to live at the cutting edge of what God wants to do in you and through you and, and put stuff back together that's broken and, and, and get out of sideways relationships with somebody. When you are there on that journey, you will learn two things. Forgiveness is hard work. Pursuing quality relationships is the hardest work. But in pursuing God, you'll receive passion and grace that abides with you forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you so much for these truths of scripture this morning. And I pray that as we pursue you, that our lives will will change. I pray that petitions and and praises will, will shape our prayers as we carve out time in quietness and in secret for you. Father, where someone needs to forgive today, allow that, that door to open, that pathway to be seen. Give them courage for that next move. Father, where someone needs to have that conversation with another person and, and kind of sort out some of the, the, the wobbly stuff, the mucky stuff. Father, allow that conversation to happen. Father, above all, keep us focused on you. Keep us driving towards your kingdom. 
We pursue you. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray.